Welcome to Green Team Speaks To, the podcast for the Paulson Institute's Green Finance Center. Hello, I'm Felicia Wu, Director at Paulson Institute. Today, I'll be speaking with Christoph Niedefel Wang, the new Director of the Green Finance and Development Center at Fudan University's Fanhai International School of Finance. He was previously the founding director of the Green Belt and Road Initiative Center at China's Central University of Finance and Economics. Needless to say, he is an expert in the fields of finance, sustainability, innovation, and infrastructure, and has focused recent work on efforts around greening the Belt and Road Initiative. Christoph, welcome to the Green Team Speaks To podcast. Certainly crazy times with a busy, busy fall ahead. Congratulations on your new role and appreciate that you have made the time to join us today. As noted in your intro, your expertise and past experiences are quite relevant to what we focus on at the Paulson Institute. So I'm very much looking forward to having a rich and interesting conversation today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure and great honor to be here. Thank you so much. I am very eager to just kind of get started and jump in, if that's okay. Wonderful. Um, Let's get started. Okay, so my first question to you is the negative perceptions around the the broad BRI and fostering that into a green sustainable project and initiative, and especially as it pertains to coal and infrastructure. And, you know, for example, one of the recent reports claims that China's alone home to about uh, 53% of coal capacity currently under construction. The Bank of China is cited to have financed more than 35 billion overseas coal-based power projects since 2015. But at the same time, the numbers are also showing China's making an effort to the contrary. Maybe you want to pick your brain and see what are the trend lines that you're seeing from your own research on the, on the Belt and Road Initiative and what can we be expecting in the near term for coal and BRI, especially as China's um, made some big commitments at the UN. And kind of how does China square these, these practices with its larger 3060 goals? I think this is such a great question. I might just use the next half hour to just explain <laughs> uh, and then start talking. No, I'll, I'll try to, I'll try to um, uh, be precise. I think it's very clear that China has, um, particularly in the Belt and Road initiatives, or it's overseas investments uh, in about 140 countries that have signed agreements to work on the on the Belt and Road. There have been a lot of coal-fired uh, power investments and also coal mining investments and also other fossil investments um, since uh, the Belt and Road Initiative was established in 2013 and even before. The heydays of coal investments were definitely 2013 to 2016. And uh, the uh, main recipient countries were Pakistan, Indonesia, and uh, Vietnam. So there is a lot of coal investments um, and coal construction that has happened. Now, there has been criticism from the get-go um, that coal is, of course, not a clean energy source. Um, and over the last years, we have seen that the uh, criticism and kind of the challenges of building coal-fired power plants have also led to specific results. Most importantly, kind of in the result, there was an interest to engage in what do we actually mean by kind of coal is not good, while a lot of the BRI countries were actively demanding to build coal-fired power plants. So if you look at Kenya, if you look at Vietnam, if you look at Indonesia, these are countries that are actively asking for new coal-fired power um, investments. 
And what really has happened um, is that the price of renewables, particularly solar and wind, have dropped much faster than we ever imagined. And I think you've covered that so many times in, in this podcast. So that makes just the economics also for Chinese investors just very negative. And the uh, Chinese investors have increasingly understood that if you want to make money with overseas finances, it's not just welfare that we provide for free. There's a requirement for actually getting a return on investment that a lot of the coal-fired power plants are not risk-free, rather they have a very high risk, and that also a lot of the coal-fired power plants that had been announced, that had been gone through all the permission process, environmental impact assessments, that were actually not really um, viable. And that more than 50%, so we published in last June a study that we found really that more than 50% of announced coal-fired power plants um, since 2013 have not really moved forward. So that's more than half of the projects that were announced or were uh, somehow finding investments were shelved, were canceled, were mothballed. So that's really clearly a risk for financial institutions. And so there's much more interest also to scale them back. Um, and then, of course, comes the commitment by President Xi this year to stop building any new um, coal-fired power plants. And we've seen that already in 2020, 2020, so no, no new announcements for new coal-fired power plants. Um, in 2021, we did not see any coal-related um, investments. So in, in some ways, this has been ongoing. And the big question is much more now, how can we support the early retirement of the existing coal fleets while we really support also the transition of the energy systems into uh, green energies? Right. So it sounds like it's it just kind of means good business for, for the Chinese, essentially. Right. I think from a very uh, green finance, financial point of view, it does not make sense to invest in coal-fired power plants. And kind of just following on on that, how to continue to encourage the, I guess, divestment or not continuing to invest of these institutions. I think you had uh, done a study with the MEE and the Green BRI Center developing sort of a traffic light evaluation system for BIR projects in general. Just kind of, I thought it was a very uh, well-proposed uh, system and, and um, it could be a very helpful tool. So how, does, how has the idea been received by stakeholders in China and out of China? As you mentioned, some of the countries on the BRI were actually asking for these kinds of projects. So what are some kind of just top line main ideas and challenges to the system as you are working through some of that research? And what are some of the actual impacts if it could be implemented? Right. So the traffic light system is a system to evaluate projects for their potential environmental negative and positive impact. So a green project has positive environmental impacts on either biodiversity, climate, or pollution, while having no negative impacts on any of these dimensions. And a red project very simply has a negative impact on any of these dimensions. So it can have a negative climate impact, can have a negative biodiversity impact, or a negative pollution impact. And the yellow projects are kind of neither beneficial nor negative impacts. And the idea to develop the system is quite obvious. How can we decide what projects are actually green, what projects are not green? And if you want to build a green BRI, it means we have to invest in green projects. So that was the basic idea. Now implementing that, developing this is a really consultative project with a number of Chinese and international partners over the course of a year, of more than a year. The uh, final result was um, proposed in December last year. And since then, I think many good things have happened, both in the BRI countries um, that were also um, involved, of course, in, in the development of this traffic line system, and of course, also in uh, the more 
Western community actually welcomed this approach because it listed all fossil fuels, for example, as red projects. So very clear, restricted projects. It's very clear that these have environmental and negative impacts. While we clearly also supported some specific green technologies, the goal is to use that as a basis for greening the BRI. So the uh, next round of this green development guidance, which is the framework for the traffic line system, will be actually announced and introduced next week. So I'm very excited about that. So the implementation guidelines for the traffic line system. So there's more work going on with the Chinese stakeholders and international stakeholders. And also very practical, the Ministry of Ecology and Environment, together with the Ministry of Commerce, which are two important ministries looking at the environment and overseas investments, came out with the green development guidelines, um, which used a lot of the language from this green development uh, guidance. From the, so the... Uh, Ideas from the traffic line system were very well picked up also now in official um, Chinese policy documents. So that's, I think, on a very positive side. There's no other country that I know, um, and we studied pretty much all the important countries, that really regulates overseas or guides overseas investment and guides overseas projects for their environmental um, goals. So if you have international banks, they do that for their own stakeholders, like shareholders um, that demand um, de-risking overseas port uh, portfolios. But it's never the governments. But of course, with China being a very top-down system, with a lot of state-owned uh, financial institutions, a lot of state-owned enterprises, a top-down system makes much more sense. So China has really become the first country in that sense that provides so much guidance for greening overseas activities. Wow, that's, that's really wonderful to hear. And the implementation guidelines, um, if they're coming out soon, will be very interesting to, I think, a lot of stakeholders that are watching this space. So I guess kudos to the work that you've done and started here. Thank you. I think there are many more stakeholders involved. In that many that, that should be really joining, right? Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I guess as a follow-on to that, I think you're aware that the Paulson Institute has been working on the green investment principles for the Belt and Road for some time. And, and just like you, it was a very consultative process. It took years in the development with uh, Tsinghua and the City of London. So what role do initiatives like the principles and like the uh, traffic light system play in greening the Belt and Road? Um, I think you mentioned a, a couple kind of very important stakeholders are missing. Is this a way to kind of engage with others to help with that process, to facilitate? So it's very interesting that you mentioned the green investment principles. Um, I'm working with it in a project together to kind of align the green investment principles and the green development guidance of the traffic line system. So there's a project that is also facilitated by all the relevant stakeholders, brings them together to make these two frameworks come together. The green investment principles are in many ways a very good framework to have an overarching market-driven principle-based idea of what it means to, to green. And there's of course also a number of capacity building workshops taking place. For me personally, I think the most important contribution of the GIP is twofold. Number one, we have a better framework than the GIP. To be very honest, the equator principles are much more detailed, much more complex, but very few Chinese financial institutions have ever signed up to the equator principles because it's not a Chinese framework. So providing a Chinese framework that Chinese financial institutions that are very important in, on the international stage was important. The second aspect that I think is um, important is that it provides a little bit of transparency of what's actually happening in terms of um, environmental and social and governance frameworks, risk management 
in these financial institutions. So there's a better way of comparing the uh, different institutions that are signatories to the green investment principles. Of course, there's a lot of work still to be done to really use such a voluntary framework to green finance. And there, I think, ideally, we have this market-driven green investment principles and the top-down green development guidance plus uh, relevant government frameworks that come together and ideally push for, for a much greener BRI. The work is not easy. There's still a lot of demand for possibly non-green projects. There's also, of course, non-green projects are very financeable in many ways. There's, you can make money and you can make real good projects. The question is, how can we support also the BRI countries to demand much more of the green projects, to demand much more proper environmental and social risk management when implementing projects there? So if you think about mining, if you think about roads and rail, there's a lot of challenges in building such projects in an ecologically friendly way. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to switch gears a little bit here, but still tied to the Belt and Road. China's national carbon market officially began trading in the summer. And so I think we all know it's the largest market. It has its challenges still. And I I think that um, with its 3060 goals, there's a lot of work being done around carbon. So I guess kind of what is that nexus? Is there a nexus of carbon and the BRI? And is there a role for carbon to play in greeting the BRI? I think kind of the goals to peak before uh, carbon emissions before 2030 and to be carbon neutral have, of course, spurred a lot of activity in China um, to use the different tools available, including the emission trading system, the ETS. The ETS has been in development for for 10 years. Now we have some form of national uh, emission trading system. I think it's always uh, very ironic to call it the largest carbon market because um, ideally we trade as little we have as little carbon as possible. So having the largest carbon market is a little bit um, right. Um We just also worked with the Konrad Adenauer Foundation some and other partners to look at different carbon markets in Southeast Asia to compare them in terms of their compatibility. Because ideally, of course, a lot of the smaller countries in Southeast Asia or also Central Asia, their carbon markets are just very small Mm. in a a good sense. But uh, so (laughs) trading on a small carbon market is becoming much more difficult. You don't have as many players, you don't have as many market participants, um, and you don't have as many allowances to trade. So integrating into a larger carbon market makes a lot of sense if the carbon markets can be aligned. Mm-hmm. Now that's a question of design. Um, how do you design your carbon market in terms of what type of emissions are actually included? Which industries are included? How do you hand out your allowances and so on? And so what we found is unfortunately that the carbon markets, A, in a lot of the Southeast Asian countries are still under development, so they're not really that advanced. While at the same time, the Chinese carbon market, as you say, has its very Chinese characteristics design, which is at this time very incompatible um, in terms of how it hands out um, the allowances, how it actually does the trading, how it, and how the pricing is done, so that the compatibility between the carbon markets is relatively limited at this time. Mm-hmm. I think that sounds about right, but I think it sounds like there's also kind of future design plans to to have that integration. And I don't know if that integration's going to be part of, you know, the BRI or part of a, a different initiative or just kind of an ad hoc organic kind of process as these smaller markets continue to develop. 
Right. I think it's important to understand also that the Chinese carbon market right now is not a financial investment opportunity. So it's the interest of scaling up the carbon market from a very practical point of view from China, from the Chinese side, are not as large. The players on the carbon markets are only the participating companies. So there is no financial gambling, so to say, on the, on the, the ETS. So who's really then interested in expanding the ETS to other um, countries? And so there is currently no real player. There is no system to um, expand it at this stage. And the um, World Bank has um, had for, for years kind of a country readiness program um, to help countries build a carbon market. Of course, the EU um, with different agencies like the GIZ has worked with a number of countries to uh, ramp up capacity on building a carbon market. So I think there's a lot of different players at work. And um, at this time, the EU carbon market seems to be the most effective and the most efficient in terms of pricing carbon and therefore also reducing carbon. And then of course, also trading carbon. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. So I think, let me close with kind of one last question. And this is something probably really timely as the COP15 is happening right mm. now. And we have done a lot of work on that biodiversity aspect as well. And so I think with that, I'd want to kind of ask you, is, is there relative to BRI, um, how are you thinking about biodiversity in that context? And if you have, what are some of the preliminary observations that you've seen? First of all, I really want to also congratulate the Pawson Institute for doing such fantastic work, helping us understand the value of the economy and also the value at risk through biodiversity or biodiversity loss. So that, that work really is fundamentally important. And the uh, COP15 has uh, kicked off and there have been some announcements on, of course, the uh, Kunming Fund for Nature, I think it's called, with uh, China committing 1.5 billion RMB, particularly for overseas support, which is, of course, kind of, we have to understand that China likes to define itself as a developing country. So supporting other countries while struggling at home for developing countries seems always a little bit counterintuitive. While of course, China also increasingly understands, and I think that's a a good sign that its own footprint in the world and therefore its own responsibility in the world is increasing. So that's, I think, uh, kind of trying to balance these two policy uh, worlds. Yes, we're a developing country and yes, we have a, a global responsibility. Um, this is, I think, kind of a important background. There has been a lot of work on biodiversity conservation frameworks, particularly through the Belt and Road Initiative International Green Development Coalition, but also in CCICD. The biodiversity and nature aspects have played an increasingly important role. Also, the green development guidance with the traffic line system has biodiversity as one of the core areas, which is also in some ways more green than many of the other green finance frameworks. So biodiversity does play a role. I think there's a lot more work, obviously, as we all know, that needs to be done, whether it's the BRI or also more developed countries. We're just, from a financial point of view, we just don't understand how to integrate biodiversity risks into financial decision-making. We understand that we depend on nature, but we don't really know whether it's China or whether it's Europe or whether it's US, how to value 
as a financial institution, the risks of biodiversity loss, or also how to scale the opportunities that by protecting biodiversity or investing in nature positive assets or activities, how we can scale it to really make a big business case. And so that's not a specific problem to the BRI, kind of very specific to the BRI. What the problem is that the laws in many of the BRI countries and the implementation of the environment laws is, of course, not as strong as in some Western countries. And so that's where this idea of not using China's uh, kind of previously the uh, um, policy documents from China said, as long as the investors and the companies comply with the host countries, with the laws of the host countries, with the procedures of the host countries, then we are fine. Then the financial institutions can make a check underneath, then the developers can make a check underneath and all the licenses can be given. Now that is changing. And that is really kind of an important change that we saw starting um, at the end of 2020. So more than a year ago, that the policy documents are now calling for the application of international best practice standards in order, of course, to protect these countries from biodiversity loss, from um, climate change consequences. So I think this is really an important development that we move away from this host country principle to a more international standard when the Chinese are trying to do green overseas finance. Well said. I think we do lack the understanding of how to integrate biodiversity and the value of biodiversity into our financial system. And that's the million, well, actually, maybe trillion dollar question. And so our I life think, question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're, we're all, I guess, I think working on that. And I think we're very happy to see the, the progress that's, that's being made. Of course, like climate needs to be faster, needs to be on a magnitude that I don't think we can imagine right now, but, you know, hopefully kind of through our, both of our collective works, it's going to continue to be an issue that continues to rise to the top of the agenda. And okay, I um, maybe lied. So one last question, really, just kind of to close up. Um, I think I, I like to end these with with, with a fun one. What are yeah, okay. some of the ways that you live a green sustainable lifestyle? That's such an easier question now that we have COVID and that China really, really restricts international travel. For me, there are three ways that, that I like to think about my lifestyle. And it's actually a healthy lifestyle that I kind of want to live. And healthy means in three regards. Number one, I move more myself by walking and biking rather than taking a car, um, which is interestingly in China, often uh, faster anyway to bike than uh, taking a car. And so it's, I bike pretty much uh, everywhere um, mm -hmm. in the city. Um, that's number one. Number two, I try to eat more vegetables and far less meat. That's I think of course very good for the environment. Kind of just as a fun fact, the global meat industry is responsible for 35% of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So reducing meat consumption and actually living healthier by eating more plant-based diets is, is definitely one of the things that I do. And the third is uh, reducing my choices, reducing my choices in my wardrobe, reducing my choices in kind of my everyday shopping, rather by high quality stuff and less stuff, because in the end, more choices don't after actually very low thresholds make us unhappier. And so by reducing your choices every morning in your wardrobe or wherever, uh, also hopefully um, contribute to less consumption in a greener lifestyle. Interesting. 35%. That's very high. Yeah. But I guess, thank you so much for taking the time today again.
thank you so much for having me again and uh, I look forward to read more of your fantastic work from the Holton Institute. Same to you. We look forward to that implementation guidelines. Fantastic. Thank you for joining us on Green Team Speaks 2. To listen to more episodes and learn more about the Paulson Institute's work in green finance, please visit us at paulsoninstitute.org. See you next time.